If you're like me, you grew up in the 70s, just after the moon landing and the subsequent moon landings. You watched the Jetsons, and the future seemed like it was all going to be about space. It was the space age. And I'm pretty sure most people living back in the the mid to late 70s figured that by the end of the first decade of the 21st century, we'd all be travelling in space on a semi-regular basis. We might be visiting a space station in orbit around the Earth. We might be visiting the Moon and bases on the Moon. We might even be going to Mars. Of course, none of those things happen, except for a very, very small handful of astronauts from around the world who have been on a space station for the last decade or so. But for most of us, travelling to space seems at least as far away today in 2009 as it did to people living in the early 70s. There's a few people who aim to change that, though. And today, the guest on the show is... Yeah, so uh, I'm David Horn. I'm a program manager at Microsoft and a space enthusiast. And one of the things that is involved in organising this year is the 2009 Space Elevator Conference. I had a chat with him today to tell me about the Space Elevator Conference, what happens and what a space elevator is, and if they can pull this off, what it might mean for the realisation of those dreams that some of us had in the 70s about one day being able to travel in some sort of affordable way into space. The Podcast Network is supported by Neo.org, a social network with a purpose to transform the world by enabling people to transform themselves. And Tony Kynaston, our first TPN patron. Become a TPN patron or a member of the TPN 500 by visiting tpn.thepodcastnetwork.com. So the conference is, this is the seventh annual conference in the U.S. Um, over about an eight or nine year period. And it's just to get all the scientists, engineers, students, people interested in making a space elevator a reality, just get them together once a year to talk about what's the state of the art, where are we now with various technologies, um, where are we on political and PR fronts, or what are the legal issues we need to address. Um, so it's addressing all those things so that when the technologies are finally mature to build this thing, we're kind of ready to go. So it's kind of a checkpoint each year about what, what's the next step to make this a reality. Wow, so I didn't know that. I, I'd assumed that this was the first because I'd never heard of it before, but it's um, been going for quite some time. That's fascinating. Yes, yes. And Europe has one every year, and Japan has had a few of them, so there's, there's a big global community around this. And how did Microsoft come to be involved in this particular one? Yes, yeah, so this is the second year Microsoft is hosting it. Uh, last year... Um, I don't know how it started last year. I, I just attended last year. I wasn't involved in the planning of it. But many of the uh, of the, of the scientists uh, who have been working on this for a while were in the Seattle area at the time. And uh, it just worked out that uh, they got Microsoft to sponsor the conference last year, and it was a big success. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you know, as uh, 
As a, a former Microsoft employee for many years, it's always great to see Microsoft uh, getting involved in something this cool. And it must be a big difference for you. I mean, being involved in Office during the day, which is the height of uncool these days, to uh, space elevator conferences is the height of coolness, right? Well, yeah. Well, I don't know if I agree with the former <laughs> statement there. but uh, That was a dig, a little dig, know. David. Um so uh, for people who don't know much about the concept of a space elevator, do you want to give us the, the potted history? I always assumed it started with Arthur C. Clarke, but in doing some research over the last few days, I see it actually goes back quite a while before Clarke. Yeah, it does go back a little, a little while back, and there's been a lot of it written in, in literature and some of the science fiction as well, so including Clarke's work. Um, yeah, the... The original ideas, you know, why it was it seemed so impossible was that you had to bring an asteroid into Earth orbit and mine the materials on it to build this this elevator, to build this cable, and that's a, it's a huge project. Just moving an asteroid into Earth orbit is, is is going to be very expensive and use rockets and all kinds of things. Um, so years ago, um, Brad Edwards wrote a book about you know he read that. Thing. And NASA said, yeah, this is, you know, thousands of years away. And he goes, no, there's a simpler way. And he came up with kind of a new approach to it, um, using all these ideas from, from science fiction and the original NASA study that was so far out. And he took a whole new approach to how to do this and in a much more economical, more feasible way. Um, and with the, uh, you know, the advent of carbon nanotubes and, and, and its strength properties and its potential, it's like, hey, maybe this isn't so far off as we think. Maybe it's only 10 to 50 years or 100 years away, not you know, hundreds or thousands of years away. That's kind of a little bit of the history of, of kind of how we came to these meet, to these conferences. Um, and I can talk a little bit about what 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 this thing would look like. and kind of a new concept. Um, yeah, is well, you know, that. yeah. So so things that are you know why this seems feasible now. So the so the cable um, would be you know if you, once the carbon nanotubes you know or, or some other material that we may, may have not yet discovered. Can have this high strength that's very lightweight and, and strong. For example, you know the theoretical limits of carbon nanotubes, you know, go to you know 120 gigapascal tensile strength. You'd have a ribbon a meter wide and paper thin, but hundreds of times stronger than steel. This, you know, kilometers of this thing would weigh a few pounds. Um, so the weight is really low and the strength is very high. So this makes this thing possible. Um, so the cable would be like 62,000 miles long, so it would go beyond geosynchronous orbit. And instead of putting a big asteroid in geosynchronous orbit that has this mass, what you do is you put the mass farther past geo-orbit, and you don't need as big of a mass. Um, and as far as an engineering problem, 62,000 miles isn't unheard of, because if you add up all the cable in the Golden Gate Bridge, that's 72,000 miles long, right, right about that, so that's even longer. So it's not unheard of as an engineering thing. It's a, it definitely is going to be an engineering challenge, um, but it seems like within grasp when you look at it, when you take a look at it that way. Um, and then the benefits of it, you know, what this will give us instead of um, tens of thousands of dollars or ten thousand dollars a pound to put something in orbit in a, in a rocket, we can lower that cost to a hundred dollars a pound or less when you have one or more of these elevators. Um, so it, you know, it will enable cheap access to space. And what I like to think of is nonviolent access to space. There's no rocket needed to get there. There's no fiery reentry coming back. It's a nice, slow, 200-mile-an-hour ride. You know, it takes you a week to get to geosynchronous orbit. It'd be like a, a cruise um, and, and the cost of a, of a first-class plane ticket, which I think would just change the economies 
or the world open up space as a new as a new access as new resources can be can be developed there. And one of the latest things people talk about is power and energy. You could build easily, more easily build massive solar power satellites and stations that uh, would not require the expensive rockets to put all that material up there. But I usually ramble on this stuff, so <laughs> you need to stop me and redirect me if I no, it's go exci- off on It's exciting, but I, I, the question I was going to ask you next was what goes at the other end of the ribbon? What The, the end that's out beyond geosynchronous orbit what what is that? Is that a space station, or is it just a, a big yeah. counterweight of some kind? Yeah, it could be. It would be. It could be. It would initially be a counterweight, and what what would happen on the initial uh, deployment? What the current thought is is that you would um, have these these climbers that crawl the ribbon, but would actually add more material to it to kind of strengthen the initial threat um, to build it up to higher capacities. And those cars, those climbers, would just end up at the very end and just kind of add to that counterweight until you got to got it to the right point. And this, you know, the centripetal force just keeps the whole thing standing um, in, in orbit. Uh, but yes, you could put a station at GEO. You could put a station at the very end of it. Um, but you also get all this angular momentum at the end of it. So as you release something at the end of the cable, it will just slingshot it. So you could more cheaply, easily, and faster, with more speed, get to planets like Mars and, and Venus. So it even um, removes so the need for use propulsion. Use that shot effect. I mean, it, it obviously is designed to remove the need for propulsion to get off of the planet and outside of geosynchronous orbit. But you're saying that once you're outside of there, it, you, you don't even need propulsion to get momentum in space because it'll just uh, use. That's right. As long as you're, you know, you're on that path, you might have to need, need a little bit of uh, propulsion to, you know, for example, if you were to drop something at 300 kilometers or 300 miles. You know, it's going to drop straight off the elevator. You still need a rocket to kind of circularize that orbit for what you're, whatever you're putting in space. Right. Um, but yeah, you might need some some sort of maneuvering to you know to adjust your trajectories, but not not the whole you know millions of pounds of fuel just to get up to that point. So explain once this thing is built, how um, a rocket is going to get from Earth up to the top of it. You, you talk about climbers, but what's the actual process? Yes. The suggested process for Climbing up this sixty-two thousand, sixty-two thousand miles—is that how much? How long you said? That's right. Yeah, the, the, the cable will be sixty-two thousand miles long, and so go beyond geosynchronous orbit. Um, and the idea is that you don't bring your fuel with you. Um, that's the current the current concept, because uh, when you place a rocket into space, it's like seven percent of your payload is actually of the whole mass of the rocket is your payload, and the rest is fuel to carry the fuel, to carry the fuel, to carry the payload, just to get up in orbit. So it's very inefficient and expensive. But if you don't bring your fuel with you and you can crawl up up the, the ribbon you know, with some sort of traction system that just clamps onto the ribbon and crawls up it, um, you can get you know, 80% or more of your payload is actually what you're bringing into space, and the rest is just, just the structure around that. But the current idea is that you would beam the power to, uh, to the climber uh, where you'd have some photovoltaic cells that are tuned to a certain wavelength, and you have these high-power lasers just beam the energy to um, the car, to the climber, and then it just converts that to electricity, and then it climbs up the ribbon. And so it has so, um, something, uh, you know, something uh, that enables it to, uh, like a pulley system that enables it to climb up this uh, ribbon. How does it actually climb up the ribbon? That's right, right. So it has some sort of traction system that just clamps on and has treads on it that would 
that would climb up the rim. And that, that's the current uh, popular concept to do it that way. There's other ideas where you could do, you know, ribbons that are loops that just actually work like a traditional elevator that rotate, you know, on pulleys and then you just, you know, clamp onto it and the whole thing pulls you up. So there's some, some, some kind of the uh, other edge concepts on that that people are exploring. And it's actually uh, one of the talks at the conference this year is about that type of a concept. So nobody knows like, what the final thing will look like, but the, the common theme is that it's a fixed ribbon and that you would uh, climb it and have something um, clamp on it and have rollers, some roller traction system to crawl up it. Wow. So, and a lot of challenges in that, too. I mean, these rollers are going to spin millions of times before they get to the top. And, you know, what happens to wheels, you know, and rollers, you know, that have that kind of uh, uh, endurance? Yeah, lots of wear and tear getting up there, I imagine. That's right, right. So, but once you get farther enough, and once you pass the atmosphere, and once you get through the halfway point, then you're actually, you're essentially braking. So you don't need uh, the power at that point. You just need a braking system and, you know, and at least some charge to run that braking system until you get to the end. Right. And so uh, over the last uh, eight or nine years that the conference has been running, how much progress has been made? So a, a lot of progress. So right now, the carbon nanotube um, strength is um, within probably an order of magnitude of where, where it needs to be just to build a, a cargo-only light elevator. So, you know, it, it could be very close. Uh, so there's been a lot of um, uh, progress in that area. And, of course, carbon nanotubes have much broader application, you know, to, to armor and stronger, lighter vehicles, to, you know, displays for uh, computers. I mean, so... Uh, carbon nanotube revolution is just going to be um, can hit hit us way before the elevator. We see an elevator, so um, and there's there's going to be some talks on that as well at the conference. But what uh, NASA has done, similar to the you know the Ansari X Prize uh, from a few years ago, where you had a, a private company put somebody in suborbit you know twice within ten days and you won ten million dollars. Well, there are two NASA challenges for the for the uh, space elevator. There's the, the power beaming contest and the tether strength challenge. Uh, so the power beaming contest happens each year, and, and last year what they did is they had a, you know, like a 100-meter um, cable hanging from a crane, and they had these, these elevators, these, these climbers that were, uh, had laser beam shot at them, and you had to climb it and go at a certain rate to get to the top of this crane. Um, and, and nobody won the contest last year, but this year um, in September is going to be the, the contest, and they're going to have a, a kilometer-long cable suspended from a helicopter, so they're really going to the next level. Uh, to get up in the winter, that I think wins two million dollars. Uh, the other prize is a um, tether strength contest where you have to build, you have a, a two gram tether and into a loop made out of carbon nanotubes or some material um, that's not an off the shelf material. And then there's a an off the shelf uh, tether, and you have to be twice as strong on that, and you and you, and you just break it until it, it meets its maximum tension strength, and the thing will break. And if you're twice as strong as the house tether, you win the two million dollars. Um, from NASA. And that um, contest, that competition year, this year, we're going to have at the conference. So that's the first for the conference, too. That's really that should cool. be a crowd pleaser. <laughs> Are these going to be, uh, you know, videoed and put up on your website? Yeah, there will be there will be videos of it when that's done. And uh, they're, they'll probably be on various sites. So uh, the company Spacework Foundation is, uh, is sponsoring that, and they're going to be at the site. There will be NASA officials judging it and monitoring it as well. So the companies that are involved in trying to do the foundational research for a lot of this stuff, you've, you mentioned NASA putting up the prize. I guess even developing something like this is something we would traditionally associate 
as being the sort of task that NASA would do in and of themselves with JPL or something like that. But I, I gather that there are more companies. Are there a lot of private companies involved in the development? Yeah, so there are some, some private companies, and there have been some that have come and gone um, because uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's expensive doing this research, right, and, mm. and getting the funding and, the, and the, the capital to do this. So because the, the technology, the carbon energy technology is not quite there, um, you know, people are kind of not ready to, ready to fund that yet. So another alternative is that they're looking to various universities around the world to do, to do some, some of this research, too. Um, I know MIT has a team that where they have a carbon nanotube furnace where they're, where they're trying to build tethers and trying to build these things to test as well. So I think you can, there's going to be a lot of academic, academic work done first. And once we can you know, get the tether strength big enough or strong enough, I think we'll, we'll hopefully see more investors. And I and I and it's my understanding, and uh, I've heard this secondhand, is that you know, you know, NASA says, yeah, if you build this, we'll we'll be we'll use it, you know, but we're we're not currently funding it right now, but we'll fund the competition. Maybe that will change in the future as it becomes as it looks more real, realistic. Why wouldn't NASA be funding it now? I mean, surely the more funding they throw into something like this, the quicker it's going to uh, become a realized vision, and the cheaper. Uh, I imagine that there's a there's a cost benefit here for for getting payloads out into space. Surely, it, it makes good economic sense for them to be investing in it. Yeah, I I, I would think that too, but uh, I'm not. <laughs> in any way in the loop on in, in asking what they're thinking is on that. So There's a Canadian company, Toth Technology, run by Carolyn Roberts and Brendan Quine, who uh, are doing some work. Uh, I believe they're trying to use Kevlar as opposed to carbon nanotubes to build a space ribbon. They've said that they think their elevator project may come to fruition within five to ten years. What kind of timelines are generally generally being talked about at the Space Elevator Conference yeah, it, it, no, no one knows if its current trends happen, you know, and, we, and, we, and the carbon nanotubes work out, and they and they progress the way they have, and we figure out how to make them in long lengths. And this could be people, some of the optimists are like within ten years this could happen. Um, but I think generally people think probably within is a matter of decades, more than you know, more than ten years. Um, and, and I know the Kevlar. I've heard some of the work on the Kevlar stuff, and, and it's, I don't think it has the capacity, from my understanding, to be an Earth-based elevator. But that doesn't mean we could build it out of something else, some, you know, somewhere like the moon or, or, or put one on Phobos. One of the speeches uh, this year is about a, a Phobos-based elevator that will capture spacecraft going to Mars instead of using aerodynamic braking to stop the progress of the spacecraft. You just grab this elevator and you just kind of take some of Phobos' angular momentum to slow down. So... Uh, another one is, you know, asteroid return vehicles. You know, you can send uh, something into an asteroid, and you have a much shorter tether that you could deploy from that asteroid, and you could grab a sample, crawl up the uh, the tether, and then fling, slingshot yourself back to Earth. So, hmm. and that would be a good way to test the technology. You know, and it's like the fuel savings isn't that big, and something like that. But it, but it'd be like a technology demonstrator type of thing. It's like a skyhook that you grab onto. Right, right, and that's been a term that's also also used for the elevator. Right. So, uh, yeah, who, who who can attend this conference in uh, Redmond in August? Is it open to the general public? It's open to anybody, right? So um, we've got multiple tracks for for what level of interest you want to do. So on uh, August twelfth, that Wednesday night before the four day conference starts, 
there's a one hour free presentation and anybody in the public can just come and find out what is this thing in an hour and, you know, have a 30 minute question and answer session. If you're interested, come to the conference and learn more. So you can go to the main, very technical conference track if you want to really dig into it or pick any number of days you want to go to. And we're also doing what we're calling a Space Elevator 101 day on the Saturday, uh, August 15th, where you can do a morning or afternoon session, go for four hours and learn a little bit more in depth. You know, bring your family and friends and, you know, you can have up to four people on one $40 registration ticket. It's just kind of like to get the students involved and to learn more about this. And hopefully, you know, inspire kids to want to um, learn math and science and engineering and, and, you know, be a part of this when they grow up because they'll be the ones building it. Um, yeah. We're going to have, you know, Pacific Science Center and Museum of Flight are going to be here, uh, having ex- ex- exhibits during that day as well. Uh, one thing Microsoft wanted to do is this, is to say, yeah, Microsoft, you know, employees like this kind of stuff, and, and we're going to host it, you know, for them because we think this is cool. You know, the same reason Microsoft has probably more cricket teams than, than any U.S. company, you know, as a, as a recreational thing. So it's kind of a, a, you know, something that the employees love, but it's also the show, you know, get kids involved in math and science. This is a, an exciting way to do that, and that's kind of one of the goals that we're trying to do this year different from the previous years. Yeah, I've got eight-year-old twin boys, and I think something like this they would really capture their imagination. So, I mean, you go back to, I don't know how old you are, but when I was a kid in the 70s, just after the moon landing, uh, we were all very excited about the potential for the space program as we got older, and as we all know, it kind of stalled in a very big way. And uh, some, something like this, you know, might get those uh, a new generation of kids very excited about the potential. Yeah, that, I, I agree. I would be I would be the same way if I was ten years old again. Yeah, wanting to know, learn more about this. Yeah, so, all right. So that's our hope is to get more interest. So people uh, in the <laughs> Seattle area can go to your website, which is spaceelevatorconference.org. That's where they get more information about the sessions and register. That's right. Exactly. Excellent. Well, uh, thanks very much, David, for, for giving us that kind of overview. It's um, very exciting stuff. I look forward to seeing some of the content that comes out of the conference that you're going to throw up online for those of us that are a little bit far away from Seattle to actually make it. Yep. There again, there will be, uh, you can order the proceedings. That'll be you know, available a few months afterwards. You can get all the details of the technical papers if you want. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of videos from, from the Tether String competition. That will be posted online. We'll have links to all that stuff. Well, that's very cool, David. Again, thanks very much for taking the time to chat. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You're making friends with the fireflies. I can't say that that comes as a surprise. But the things they say are not what they seem So you've been called to tell us what they mean Yes, you've been called to tell us what they mean Yes, you've been called to tell us what they mean Yes, you've been called to tell us what they mean Okay.
podcast network is supported by Neo.org, a social network with a purpose to transform the world by enabling people to transform themselves. And Tony Kynaston, our first TPN patron. Become a TPN patron or a member of the TPN 500 by visiting tpn.thepodcastnetwork.com.